I felt that the, the, there was an approach to the ancient texts and traditions, particularly the ones dealing with an antediluvian civilization, that needed some reworking that hadn't really been done before. So let me give you a little bit of background about how I got to where I did. If we look at the whole issue of the, of the um, reinterpretation of ancient texts, etc., we all know that there were aspects of the Bible, for example, that were regarded as fictitious for a long time. And then we had great explorers like Schliemann, wasn't it, who discovered Troy and various other things, people discovering the Minoan civilization, all of, all of which were thought to be fictional and just made up in the ancient traditions, Greek, biblical, whatever, and then were discovered to actually have been based on truth by good, well, that very maverick archaeologists who, who, you know, tried to prove the orthodoxy wrong and succeeded. So, I think we can all accept that there's, there's got to be some, any, any orthodox historian or archaeologist or even anybody who, uh, experts in mythology and comparative mythology, etc., I think if any of them tell you that they have got a definitive view on how to interpret all the different texts and traditions that we've got and the different aspects of them, they're not telling you the truth. Now, I'm not going to suggest to you that I've got a definitive interpretation either, but I've got an alternative one from what has been put forward by many other people, which I at least think is worthy of consideration, and that's all that I ask for it. Because when you're looking at interpreting ancient texts, you cannot be absolutely certain about what you do. There's got to be some conjecture in there. Now, as I said, I wanted to concentrate, particularly because I'd read all of the books by people like von Däniken, as we were just talked about then, even though I, you know, as I now think that an awful lot of what Eric has written is complete nonsense, I have to say, but, and I'm not even going to talk about whether he, I've had too many discussions about whether he actually believes what he's saying himself or not, but I'm not going to do that right now either. But I read von Däniken's work, people like Sitchin and the Twelfth Planet and all his other follow-up works, was absolutely fascinated by those when I first read them all wasn't even experienced enough to realise or smell a rat that in fact there's no reference section in any of Sitchin's books for example to tell you what his source references are for his work but that perhaps gives you a clue and of course went on to people like Hancock and Laval etc etc and, and, and devoured all their work just as I'm sure many of the rest of you have done so the I didn't really have any particular angle that I wanted to follow when I first started this research, other than that I wanted very much to concentrate on the, pre, the, the, the pre-flood traditions as we all, the pre-catastrophe traditions as we all understand them. Try and make some sense, you know, the, the idea of Atlantis and all the rest of it, was there anything actually to any of that? Um, and clearly I, I wasn't, you know, at that stage breaking any ground that anybody hasn't done before. Many, many people have written about these things. Where I did think I started to break some new ground, and I guess I should explain that, that for various other reasons I've come to develop what I call very loosely a spiritual worldview anyway in, uh, for completely separate reasons. So I was effectively coming at a lot of my research with that kind of a background and those sort of things in the back of my head. One of the first things that I came to that I thought people haven't picked this up properly were all the cosmology traditions or the origins of the world, whatever you want to call it, traditions one of the big things I was trying to do was to make sure I was gathering information from right across the globe. So the, the, the earliest traditions of all of the different continents, um, and not just of the you know, supposed uh, ancient civilizations of Egypt and Mesopotamia and China or whatever, but also, of course, the native traditions, from the, especially from the Americas, but Africa and Indonesia and other places. 
So anything I could get my hand on, that would be what I would try and use and bring together. Um, uh, one thing that still I haven't managed to get people to talk about very much, but I argue is perhaps one of the most important things in the book that's worthy of discussion, is that every single, and, and it's quite incredible, this, this is a consistency that isn't quite incredible. Every, when you look at it from a particular perspective, the very earliest bits of all of these ancient and sacred texts and traditions, when they're talking about the origins of the world, they all use a combination of language that involves the idea of the, uh, the, the, an ultimate creative power that originally exists in the void or the abyss or the waters, you know, but it's always like that kind of terminology and that it contains the potential or the, the embryo or the seed for all of the forms that sort of explode out of it when it bursts into creation. And that those forms are quite clearly not just physical forms in terms of the things that appear as physical planets and then all the life, uh, 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 animal life and etc. on those planets, but they're, they're clearly describing a a, a a coagulation of energy through a, a number of different states where it's getting uh, denser and denser if you like so they're talking about ethereal planes or dimensions whatever you want to call them as well as physical ones and how things gradually condense now they don't all say them in quite the specific terms as that but if you if you take those ideas and of course those ideas are very similar to the, the Hindu concept of world cycles where Brahma has his night of you have the night of Brahma or sleep of Brahma whatever you want to call it and it, where he just slumbers and there is nothingness and then you know the new cycle of creation begins again eventually everything reabsorbing itself back in and then after however many billions of years or whatever it comes out again that's his universal cycle in, in the Hindu uh, Brahmanic terms now I think they're all saying exactly the same thing as that or they're, they're at least all describing what I would refer to perhaps as the dawn of Brahma when, it, when he's waking up. Um, and I don't think that's been properly picked up by anybody, either orthodox or alternative. Because certainly if you look at what all the orthodox scholars who are the experts in comparative mythology like Joseph Campbell and Nasir Eliade and all the various others, I've combed through their work extensively and certainly Campbell, I mean... He, He's, I don't know if any of you have come across his works, The Masks of God, but there's four volumes of that, and it's very, very hard work to get through. I mean, it's very erudite in many, many parts, don't get me wrong, but there's not a single place where he, where he talks about, when he talks about origin and cosmology traditions in just the same way as when they talk about them in, you know, the, the, um, anthologies of mythology, etc., and you read any of those things, and the experts will always concentrate, nearly always concentrate, on the anthropomorphic side, in other words, what gods were around, what were they called, what did they signify, blah, blah, blah. That bit is all rubbish, as far as I'm concerned, it's irrelevant. And, it, it, and in fact, I would go as far as to say that all those bits about the names of the different gods, like in Egypt, you've got Ra, and he took his phallus in his hand, and he was on the primeval mound, and the Bennu bird was there. And blah. As far as I'm concerned, those are all very late add-ons that probably just completely confuse the picture. The original stuff that was there before is very much this much more esoteric idea of, 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 of energy bursting forth into creation, different uh, planes, ethereal planes, as well as the physical, etc., etc. Much, much more esoteric. And because I think that early stuff is so widespread, I think that allows us then to say that there was a, there was a universal wisdom around, at least, shall we say, between, I don't know, I mean, in, in different places of the world at different times, but you know, maybe from at least four, five, six thousand years ago, up until, say, a thousand years ago in different parts of the world, you know, these, these were the main things that people relied on. 
and they show a great deal, in my view, of esoteric understanding, even if they got distorted later on. Because of that, I think we can then say, well, it's not right to suggest that all of the other things that they talk about in terms of uh, how, the man was how mankind was created, for example, and, and uh, the idea of an antediluvian civilization, it's not right to automatically dismiss those as simple philosophical constructs of simple people, because that's what you know, most orthodox academics will do. They'll say, you know, this might be very interesting from a psychological point of view or whatever, but there's no real historical content in it. These are fairly simple people trying to grapple with the world around them and make up some philosophical ideas. I just don't think that stacks up when you see some of the esotericism that there is in, in some parts, and especially in the older parts. Um, now, the other, the other aspect, it, it, having said all of that, even if we allow that there is possibly some scope then for looking at these things afresh and not necessarily writing some of them off, we've also got to not take it too literally either. Because there are many, many examples of where you've got traditions where it's quite clear, once you understand the context, that these things have been massively edited for, politi for political purposes more than anything else normally. Uh, and although to some extent when I say political, political and religious goes together, to be honest. The Mesopotamians, for example, were one of the worst for it. I mean, you know, it's very, very clear when you understand the context of a lot of their different material, which we've got, you know, over several thousand years. You can see how these things are getting edited in different places. And when someone like Zechariah Sitchin says that the great god Marduk in the Enuma Elish was, you know, this fantastically important god, he was a, bad, he was a late Babylonian creation in a very small part of the, of the Near East. You know, he wasn't, he, 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 was, he was a very political figure, Marduk. He, he came out of nowhere almost. You know, so I'm afraid that people like Sitchin, when they're giving you these interpretations of, of Mesopotamian texts, are terribly guilty of ignoring the, of the, the context of the politics and the other things that are going on at the time, which you must have. There's another very fine example when he talks about this, the enumeration. I don't know how many of you come across it, but it's the, the creation epic or whatever that he, he interprets as. Um, being a story of how uh, this rogue-swelled planet came through on its strange orbit through the solar, our solar system and bashed into other planets and uh, hit what was originally the Earth and Moon combined and then the Moon split off, blah, blah, blah. The idea of a dismembered God being dismembered to create solar systems and stuff has been, is in, it's in the Chinese traditions of Pangu, uh, it's in the Scandinavian uh, traditions of Ymir. Uh, you know, he's never talked about that worldwide context for that tradition. And of course, as soon as you do and you look at those other things, you know that there's no way that those other traditions could be interpreted in the very literal, specific way he takes the Mesopotamian Enuma Elish. So it's that failure to appreciate context that I think is also, uh, many people are guilty of, and you, and you just can't do it. Um, it, it, it lacks basic scholarship, is the honest truth of it. So that was one of the reasons why I felt that you, in doing the kind of thing I was trying to do, you have to go right across the world. You cannot try and take things in isolation because they happen to suit what you might be looking for. The only way I think you can make any sense out of these things is to see what commonalities you get right across the globe. Now, I mentioned that I came at all of this with a spiritual worldview anyway, which had been developing for other reasons. One, one, I think, of the very, very strong supports for a spiritual worldview in the, in the modern world is the progress that has been made in modern science. 
and again it's one area where I disagree with a lot of my colleagues who look at I mean Graham Hancock's only recently written a paper on his website where as usual instead of slagging off orthodox Egyptologists he's now slagging off scientists uh, interestingly in trying to talk about a spiritual worldview much more than he ever has done before but modern science is at the forefront now of reconfirming great esoteric truths that have been uh, you know have been talked about in a different way by people bearers of ancient wisdom whatever you want to call them for thousands of years you know so when the ancients all understood that the physical world was an illusion they're only saying what we're now reconfirming from a properly scientific and theoretical perspective which is there is no such thing as the fundamental building blocks of matter you know Newton was wrong atoms then nuclei don't contain you know, protons and electrons aren't physical things. You know, we all know quarks are like energy waves and whatever. And I'm not going to go, I'm not an expert scientist anyway. I know you had somebody talking about string theory recently. He was probably doing a much, much better job of it than me. But the general principle must stand that, you know, that is one very obvious thing. The physical world is an illusion. It's only what we perceive. And we know that when they talk about string theory and, what, and all these other things, that whatever else they are, they're definitely talking about other dimensions that are not physical whether you want to talk about them as dimensions or planes or universes, whatever, we're talking about a great many other things that are not about the physical world. So as soon as you've got that scientific context, in my view, you must then start thinking about things in a much more philosophical and arguably, although it's a loaded word, spiritual way, if you're going to make any sense out of the world. Specifically, when I talk about a spiritual worldview, I am talking about one that is based around the twin principles of karma and reincarnation. Um, I don't ascribe to any particular, you know, I'm not a Buddhist or a Hindu or anything else, but I do generally believe that those two principles are fundamental to it. And in fact, this is very much part of the work I'm doing for my new book now, um, because when I wrote Genesis Unveiled originally and presented the manuscript to my publishers, they said, well, you talk about this spiritual worldview all the way through, uh, and you talk about it being based upon karma and reincarnation, but you never really explain what you mean by those things. And I thought, well, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? Said, no, not really. We need more. So, and plus, we want to see some of your evidence for it. So I actually went back and wrote a whole new chapter. And one of the... Um, there was some work which I think is very impressive. Which I don't, uh, how many of you have come across Dr. Ian Stevenson? No? Yeah, I know you will have done, yeah. yeah? He, he's done a lot of work on children. One of his books is called Children Who Remember past lives or previous lives. Now Stevenson works at the University of Virginia. I think he's pretty much retired now, but he's got another team that's taken on. Um, and since the 60s, he's been travelling all around the world investigating these reports of children who appear to have incredible uh, recall of, of previous lives. He, he's, um, I think he's developed, from what, what I can see anyway, he's developed about as scientific a, a, a methodology for investigating these cases as, as you could. Uh, I've seen very little criticism of his work from orthodox sources. Uh, I get the impression that most people realise that this man has, you know, has, has not only is he very professionally guarded in the conclusions he reaches from his work, but he, he, it's clear that he goes about his work extremely thoroughly. And certainly when we come to cases where uh, there is some contact between the child who has these memories and, for example, if they've identified the family, the previous family that they claim to have come from, if there's already been contact before Stevenson gets in there to investigate it, he's very, very careful to pretty much eliminate an awful lot of the evidence for that case because unless 
he can get in there before that contact comes about. He's got no ability to see exactly what went on in those initial meetings, the extent to which the child might have been being coached or you know, psychologically led by the other family, whatever. Anyway, I mean, I can't talk about this in great deal in detail now. There's some information about it in Genesis Unveiled, and there's a great deal more in the new book I'm writing now. I think that work stands up extremely well, and, and, and I would agree with what Stevenson's own conclusion is. You may not think that this is conclusive in reincarnation, but when we've considered all of the other options, which he does, perhaps you could answer the question, what else would you say best fits the, the available evidence that we've got here? And there is an awful lot of evidence. You know, we're talking about thousands of cases, or over a thousand anyway. The other person whose work I came across who I hadn't come across before was a guy called Michael Newton. Anybody even know that name? Written a, yes? Which you again? No. You've written a big book called Journey of Souls and another one called Destiny of Souls. Yes? It's not, it's not specifically children, though. It's, it's regression work with that, don't you? Now, what Newton has done is, and I've got to be careful not to talk about this too much because it's what I'm working on now and I find it absolutely fascinating, but basically Newton uh, is regressing people into the interlife. So you've all heard about people doing past life regressions where they remember that they were whatever. Newton, like a number of other people, really stumbled upon the interlife experience, and the interlife being the bit between your last incarnation and the, your current one or whatever. Uh, effectively, when you're in whatever you want to call it, the ethereal realms, heaven, whatever dimension you want to call it. He, he's got incredibly consistent descriptions from his subjects under hypnosis of the stages that you go through in the interlife, moving all the way from reviewing of your past life and very detailed karmic working through of all the things you did do and you didn't do and did right and did wrong etc and then of the extent to which you very very closely involved in planning your next life from a karmic perspective all the things that you're going to need to do all the challenges you're going to face even to the extent of some of the key people that you will end up with in your life now you know one might write that off as just pure fantasy or, or just imagination or having been unduly led by Newton himself or whatever until you read the transcripts and you see how many different people are involved and you see just how consistent their answers are and especially when you find out that an awful lot of these people when they find out what they've been talking about you know they've never believed in reincarnation or they might be absolutely fundamentalist Christians and of course reincarnation is anathema to a fundamentalist Christian and yet there they are all talking about exactly the same things in the same way so of course when you're trying to talk about hypnosis and regression into past lives yet there are in fact some very very interesting things that I find have been verified with the research I've done since which are very interesting but even if you write that off because these interlife descriptions are so consistent from so many different people that's what I think gives them their incredible power and, and I think validity so, there is some very interesting research, proper, attempted scientific research, I believe, that's now going on to, to, to look at the whole idea of reincarnation and karma, for that matter, and to put it onto a scientific footing, and not to have it relying on the stuff that was mentioned by supposed gurus 2,000, 3,000 years ago, which introduced much of which turns out, if these new people's experiences are correct, turns out to be wrong. One of the issues being, for example, that we do not come up as human souls through all the different uh, mineral and animal life forms until we progress to being human beings. Our souls are of a completely separate category. Which sounds elitist, but it, I have to say, intuitively, I've always believed that anyway, 
And these people are definitely confirming that view. And of course what they're also confirming is that there is no way we regress back into animal life forms for supposed bad karma, which I've also always thought was just intuitively it was a nonsense, and these people are repeating that. So even from that perspective, you know, you've got a, a modern perspective on things for, that you know have been handed down by in Hindu and Buddhist teachings for two or three thousand years, and so you know one has to accept some of those things are wrong, or they may be wrong anyway. Sorry, did I pick up one correctly? Did, uh, did you say in no way can you regress into a past life actually? Is that what you're saying? No, you can't regress into an animal form. Animal past, in other words, the, doc- the as they call it, the doctrine of the doctrine of transmutation appears to be wrong. Yeah, yeah. But they're talking about shortly in terms of physical. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I'm talking about the actual, in terms of physical incarnation. What's very interesting is that when people appear to be regressed into lives where they seem to remember animal characteristics or other things that are not human, um, what appears to come out of that is that very often that's happened on other planets which may or may not be as physical as the Earth. That's the best way to describe it. I don't know how deep you want to go into this. No, go on. If you're looking at that sort of subject, what you're looking for, the source of intelligence in what Steiner might call the ego or the higher self or whatever you want to call it, the cosmic memory. Yeah. Now, if that cosmic memory wasn't attached to man when he went through his animal existence, it's not going to remember it anyway. No, that's not the point I'm making. That they are very specifically saying that different categories of soul are created from soul energy, if you like for specific purposes. On, on each diff- individual planet there will be different life forms and different categories of, of soul energy will be created for the different life forms. Yeah? We can pick it up again because there is some, I mean, I like talking about this as well, so it's like... Um, okay, but so generally speaking all I'm saying is that this general spiritual worldview of, of karma and reincarnation that I'm using in my inter- reinterpretation of a lot of the ancient texts I think there's a great deal of modern scientific evidence for it and I think in modern science itself is, is pushing us down the route where we have to think of things like that. And some of the best modern scientists who are prepared to get out on a limb are of course doing exactly that. Um, you know, people like David Bohm who, who, who talked about the, 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 his hollow movement principles and all the rest of it. You know, there are a number of maverick, very well respected uh, physicists who are coming out and saying this is the way we have to go. Um, I would therefore argue that a spirit, there, is an, there is an argument that says that a spiritual worldview now of this broad sort is a more logical and philosophical proposition than an atheist worldview. Whereas, of course, you know, for hundreds of years, or at least, at least over a hundred years, in, in the Western world at least, you know, the, the intelligentsia have been confirmed rational atheists, and anybody who you know, had any sort of a spiritual worldview was regarded as a complete, uh, well, probably the intelligence of amoeba is, is effectively what they seem to imply I, I think that the situation now is reversed and we can take them on I would say but anyway are you aware of Roger Walsh's yes I am yes yes yeah, very interesting I think that's another important perspective in what's coming through that seeing it's almost like it doesn't matter whether or not it's true well that's true but I mean I happen to think that because of the perspective I'm coming from I actually think it is important that it's true and because there's a, there's a whole context I'm trying to put all of this into but you're absolutely right they all consistently say I mean the bit I haven't said the new book I'm working on which I've titled Into Life 
Ident- I found that after I finished Genesis Unveiled that there's at least seven or eight other pioneering psychologists. They're all trained psychologists. These are not people who've just set up in a shack out of nowhere. Have done exactly the same kind of work that Newton's done. Quite a lot of them before him. And I've gone into an awful lot of detail to find out to what extent there was potential corroboration between Morris and there appears to have been very little. And also most of their work got very little attention. So the idea that these things, you know, people, that their subjects, when they were coming to them for hypnosis, were already conditioned to have these experiences, I think, is, is just not a valid explanation. Apart possibly from the idea of the tunnel with the light at the end that Raymond Moody, you know, did bring to everybody's attention back in the 70s. Anyway, I can't go on about that for too long. So, let's talk about evolution. I... I've always thought that any creationist idea, and you, some of you may not agree with me on this, but if you don't, we can pick it up in the question session, but to put my perspective, I've always thought that any sort of creationist ideas are basically unphilosophical. So certainly, obviously, the Christian idea that whatever it was, 4,140 BC, Adam was created. You know. um, I also, because of some of the things I said earlier, I think the, the Hindu view of world cycles in terms of trying to apply that to the human race on planet Earth and the idea that the human race is, is regularly created along with the planet Earth, then it all gets destroyed, then we come back again. I also think that if you do that, if, if you try and uh, take that uh, um, literally in physical terms, I think that, again, they, they've completely distorted their original uh, wisdom on that one and we'll come back to that later on. So, in my view, the Earth has been here for four, probably about four and a half billion years, whatever it is, and there has only ever been one planet Earth in this solar system, and there has only ever been one human race in this solar, on this planet, and this, you know, our human race did evolve from the apes. I think, you know, personally, I think that there's just way too much archaeological and geological evidence to, to, to argue against that. Now, you may not all agree, and we can pick up on that later on, but that's my perspective on it. What is interesting is that when you've got people talking about intelligent design, for example, and the idea that there's a bit of a hand of God behind a lot of it, Newton, for example, Michael Newton's subjects, when they go into these areas, say that that is exactly how it works. So it's very interesting that, you know, there may be subtle things going on on an energy level, if you like, in the background that, you know, we're not totally aware of, which would suggest that there is a little bit of intelligent design going on to give things a push in the right direction every now and then. Um, so, from that perspective, I'm saying that, you know, I, I accept physical evolution in terms of the broad trains of evolution that we seem to see in the archaeological record, but that doesn't necessarily mean there isn't a bit of divine guidance going on in the background sometimes if it wants to. So, um, incidentally, I also don't accept the interventionist propositions of people like Zechariah Sitchin and the people who've come after him saying that we, mankind was genetically created by extraterrestrials. I mean, I don't have any philosophical problem with it. I just think that the evidence that all of these people have tried to use to say that that's what happened just doesn't stack up. Certainly Sitchin's interpretations of the Mesopotamian text don't stack up, which is what he uses. Um, you know, von Däniken stuff, I, you know, I just don't buy it, I'm afraid. Um, and again, we can come back to that if anybody wants to pick me up on that later on. So, now, we get to the real meat of it. What I think is... Um, extremely interesting and, and the thought processes I went through were that if I accept human evolution broadly speaking in terms of us coming from our eight cousins or whatever but if I also accept that the human soul is in some sense different from other animal souls 
then at what point did humans get their, the type of soul that we now have? Now, it's not, it doesn't seem to be a question that has really been asked before, and I, and I still never understand when I look at people, whether people understand where I'm coming from now, because to me it seems a very simple question. Um, and at the same time while I was thinking about that, I'd also been, of course, looking at all of the different texts around the world in terms of how they talk about the creation of mankind. So we've already talked about their cosmology traditions and the origins of the world, I think having a great deal of underlying esoteric significance that's been misunderstood. But I really struggled with the creation of man and all the ideas that Adam was created from the dirt and the dust and blah, 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 and, and you know, all the others that say similar things. And I'm well, I, I just cannot say... I'm happy that there are some interesting things going on with all, virtually all of these other different themes in these early traditions, but I cannot see what on earth they're talking about with the creation of man. And then... You look more closely at some of the Mesopotamian texts, for example, and, and they do have very many, you know, they're one of the biggest sources of creation of man texts. And again, of course, this is where, if any of you are familiar with Sitchin's work, he uses um, those to talk, you know, to back up the idea of genetic engineering. Again, wrongly, if you see the context of the original text he's talking about. But they talk, for example, in a number of places about how man came into being or was created from the, the flesh or the essence or the blood of a god. And then you start saying, well, that's sounding more interesting. And they're actually talking about, um, one of them says, for example, a god and a man are mixed together in clay. So you're very much moving away from the idea of, of, of God creating man as something completely outside of himself, as, of course, you've got in the Christian traditions, to this idea of some sort of mixture going on. And that made me start thinking, well, is this some sort of a hint about something to do with the human soul and, and something that was happening differently? Then you find that, that especially in both North, and, uh, the, the, the North Americas and the South Americas, the tribal traditions, for example, the, the Book of the Hopi Indians in the North and the, the Mayan Popol Vuh in the South, both of those, and also some Indonesian traditions, have got this idea of the multiple, multiple attempts to create a successful human being. And all of the early attempts don't go right. And one of the things that they always say about the, I mean, if, if you ignore all the, there is a load of symbology, if you like, about trying to create them out of straw and then out of wood and blah, blah, blah. But if you ignore all that symbology, one of the interesting things that comes out is they consistently say that the reasons that the early attempts weren't successful is because they couldn't speak or they couldn't sing the praises of the Creator. Now, in my view, now, this is where I go back originally to what I said before. I mean, this is, of course, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, um, I can't be absolutely sure about this. But if, you, if you've asked yourself the logical question, if the human soul is of a different class, when did it first start incarnating in a human body? Because human bodies haven't always been around on the planet. And if you've got these things saying, there were these experiments that went wrong, then is it not sensible to at least suggest that they may be trying to talk about a memory of a time when humans, or, or coming from, you know, I'm not suggesting for a moment that anybody was around at the time to record it all on, in the physical plane, but memories coming from the Akashic Records, whatever you want to call it, that advanced souls of a human nature, human-type souls, did try and incarnate in physical form maybe, I don't know, maybe a million years ago. Uh, into what was then uh, Homo erectus, or maybe even a bit more in, into what was originally Homo habilis, or whatever it might be. 
So they tried to come down early, if you like. They were ready, they wanted to get on with the experiment. And they came too early. Physiologically, the bodies we had then, which were not Homo sapien, they were earlier, and the whole physiology and psychology and everything of our neural networks, etc., etc., weren't ready for that level of advancement of soul. So it wasn't a success. And in fact, arguably, you would even say possibly that they they may have been karmic damage done to these souls that tried to come into these bodies that weren't ready to take them. Now, I see a lot of fairly blank looks at the moment, so I'll leave you to ponder that one. But, you know, of course I'm saying that, you know, you can't be sure about this, but I think it's something that is worth thinking about. It makes a, a, a degree of logical sense. Certainly it's valid to ask the question, uh, if our human souls are different, when did we first get them? And I think then it's valid to look at what you get in the ancient texts and see is there something in there that gives us a clue about what they're actually talking about and does it tell us anything. Now, when do I think that might have happened? Well, we can come back to proper archaeology now. Again, something that I think is rather overlooked when people are talking about these things. The earliest evidence of Homo sapien burial with you know, in other words, deliberate burial in the ground with a degree of ritual because they've got beads or not beads, um, you know, horn uh, deer antlers or whatever, any, anything like that that shows it's a deliberate attempt at burial with some degree of ritual. The earliest example we've got of that in the archaeological record is 100,000 years ago in Israel. Now, that's not necessarily going to be the earliest we ever find, you know, and most, uh, most archaeologists and anthropologists accept that Homo sapiens has been around in, in more or less modern form for you know, perhaps as much as 150,000 years, maybe longer. So we're not necessarily talking about um, the, adver the advent of Homo sapiens as such. But all I'm suggesting is that once you get evidence of that in the archaeological record, then you surely have got an important pointer to a, 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 a time when modern man is, is our thinking had developed enough that we are actually conscious of death and of the possibility of an afterlife. And I don't think people have picked up on that enough in the, in the archaeological record. Um, now, what I would therefore suggest is that there was a time when human-type souls, which were more advanced karmically than any other souls that had ever been able to incarnate on Earth in other animal forms, were able to come down successfully. Arguably, that's at least, shall we say, 100,000 years ago. And... I would also say, and this brings in another theme that you consistently get in the ancient texts from all around the world, the idea of bringers of civilization or civilizers of mankind or whatever crops up again in lots of different places. Now, I think that has various different aspects to it, but one of them, I think, is the idea that not only would human souls have incarnated 100,000 years ago, because the time was right, but the whole point of this exercise was to bring a spiritual awareness and a spiritual worldview into the physical plane, which had never been there before. And if you accept that there would have been a whole, the whole karmic plan for this planet, and indeed for, for, for us as mankind, is to evolve from a spiritual perspective, then it is our natural state, sooner or later, to have had this spiritual understanding and to have had it in the physical plane while we're here in, in our incarnate life. Because, of course, we've got it when we go back upstairs, but it's having it here that matters. Now, I don't think just a, a normal human soul was enough to make that happen. So I would argue, logically, that you would have had to have had a few much more advanced souls than that, which I happen to refer to as angelic souls, for the, just as a word to use, that would have also incarnated at some point, 
because they would have been ones that would have been sufficiently advanced to actually retain the spiritual worldview in the physical plane and they would have been the ones that would have been able to talk about it and describe it so they're other human yeah I'm, I'm saying they're human they're perfectly human but they're just of a more advanced nature like many other teachers great teachers that we've had you know we know uh, uh, you know arguably these you know people like jesus or buddha muhammad whatever you know are you know they're of a, a much higher karmic order of awareness that's where i think we start i think so i think we did have a spiritual worldview brought into the physical plane arguably as long as under a thousand years ago and of course you'll all be i'm sure you're familiar with the idea that there are golden age traditions all around the world they're called different things like you know the, the greeks called them golden the, the golden age the the chinese called it the age of perfect virtue now these things tend to have been written off by orthodox uh, 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 mythologists as just you know well of course this is man looking through rose tinted glasses and always thinking that there must have been some fantastic golden age at some point i don't think that's true because these people were not this is the whole point of what i said earlier they were not philosophically simplistic yeah, people who were talking about the, the origins of the universe in, in such advanced cosmological terms and then a few sentences later they're telling you about the creation of mankind and then they're telling you about the, the, uh, a, a golden age when mankind, just after mankind was first created you know you can't say well, that bit's really esoteric and then this bit from a couple of sentences later you've got to just forget I don't think you can do that and say that that's just philosophically simplistic so let's see what some of them say and I've just picked out just a few examples from Josephus for example this is now this is a, a, a his ancient history of the Jews was like a commentary on the early Christian traditions um, he's talking about Adam's son Seth this is after Cain killed Abel or whichever way around it was and Seth was the next son that was a replacement so Seth and Seth was the good guy Seth's descendants proved to be of good dispositions they inhabited the same country without dissensions uh, and in a happy condition without any misfortunes falling upon them until they died. They were the inventors of that peculiar sort of wisdom which is concerned with the heavenly bodies, bodies and their order. Then, for example, in the book of Enoch, which I'm sure you're all familiar with, well, there's various different books, the second book of Enoch, the Ethiopian version, God made for him the heaven, this is Adam he's talking about, God made for him the heavens open that he should perceive the angels singing the, singing the song of triumph and there was light without any darkness continually in paradise now I'm pretty sure that they're talking there about spiritual light not about you know, the fact that the sun didn't set in those days were. I'm just going to run through this fairly quickly because there's quite a few of them but I'm, I'm trying to give you a flavour from around the world uh, we'll take the Ramayana which is a, 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 a Hindu epic one of the Indian Hindu epics it's quite a late script actually but anyway uh, again talking about the golden age twice born men uh, twice born men usually having the esoteric connotation of, of people who are fairly karmically advanced twice born men were free from passion lust of gold and impure greed faithful to their rights and scriptures truthful in their word and deed all to blazed in every mansion from each home was bounty given stooped no man to fulsome falsehood questioned none the will of heaven they're, they're, I mean, some of these are more are, are giving you more of a sense of sort of uh, an esoteric background to them than others. And then, uh, for example, we've got from uh, a Taoist text, the Quang Tse in China. In the age of perfect virtue, they attached no value to wisdom, nor employed men of ability. Superiors were but as the higher branches of a tree, and the people were like the deer of the wild. 
They were upright and correct without knowing that to be so was righteousness. They loved one another without knowing that to do so was benevolence. They were honest and loyal-hearted without knowing that it was loyalty. They fulfilled their engagements without knowing that to do so was good faith. In their simple movements they employed the services of one another without thinking that they were conferring or receiving a gift. Therefore their actions left no trace and there was no record of their affairs. I would suggest, I mean those are very brief extracts and there's, obviously there's an awful lot more in the book, but I would suggest that those things can be taken seriously as a, an actual description of a golden age of spirituality when a spiritual worldview first was brought down into the physical plane 100,000 years ago, whenever it was. I, it, it seems to me that we, uh, the human race then did live very simply, but completely with a spiritual worldview. I think, I mean, there's an awful lot of them that are suggesting that our telepathic abilities were very, very advanced. Um, you know, and I wouldn't necessarily disregard that at all. So I'm not talking about any great technological advancement here. I'm talking about an age when people were extremely spiritually advanced and spiritually aware and lived life by that, that, that was their natural state. And indeed, what I would argue, it is our natural state and it's one we've got to get back to. But we'll come on to that in a minute. Now, let's see what happened after that. I already said that I was interested in the idea of all the traditions of, of, of supposedly advanced civilizations before the flood or the catastrophe, whatever you want to call it. So we then come on to the idea, well, did, was there this great big worldwide flood or catastrophe? Did it happen? If so, when did it happen? And perhaps why did it happen? Now, I think there is a great deal of evidence to suggest that something big did occur. All the data seems to point towards something like 11,500 years ago. Um, I'm not interested whether it's 500 years either way. That really doesn't matter to me. But we seem to be talking about that kind of time period. Something seemed to accelerate the end of the last ice age and our emergence out of that. And we know that the geological equilibrium of the planet is, is quite delicate, so you know, it doesn't necessarily take that much to, to, to knock it out of equilibrium sometimes. But it still seems that something strange happened because we know, for example, there were massive upheavals and extinctions. Not all of the evidence that you read from people like Velikovsky and Hapgood about the Alaskan mud uh, silt mud fields and all the rest of it you know some of that has been proved by more modern geologists to be a little bit far-fetched or misinterpreted but I still think there's enough in the work of people like Velikovsky and Hapgood who brought all of these great uh, the, the supposed evidence for mass extinctions to our attention but I think there is something in there still that hasn't been completely eliminated we've also got uh, uh, evidence of inconsistent glaciation which is not consistent with our uh, 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 lines of latitude as they now are um, and of, of course we've got the, the great stuff about the flash freezing of the mammoths in Siberia which indicates that Siberia that, well, that area of Siberia at least was previously was a temperate climate with good vegetation and then all of a sudden was frozen so it's done the exact opposite of what the rest of the you know, most of the rest of the planet is doing that seems to suggest there may well have been some sort of a small pole shift, which I'm, I'm sure many of you have read the work of the different people who talk about pole shifts, etc. Um, there's been some very interesting work done by a chap called Flavio Barbiero, who's an Italian guy, uh, a, a, a very good mathematician, considerably better than I am, so I don't understand half his work, but I've certainly read through some of his mathematical papers, 
and he seems to suggest that it doesn't actually take a very big object to knock um, a rotating, a bigger rotating object slightly off its balance, off its, off its axis of rotation. What was the surname again? Barbiero. I, yeah, I mentioned him in the book. Flavio yeah, Barbiero. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I looked up in the book. Yeah. Um, there is a quote from him there, but I don't think I'll go into the mathematics in detail because mm-hmm. I certainly wouldn't have understood it. Anyway, the, the other thing we've, we've got, I don't know how many of you have come across this, but we've got these things called the Carolina Bays, which were noticed from a while back. Um, and these are elliptical uh, uh, indentations of varying sizes. Some of them, are, I think, are quite large. Um, they, they were found right across the Carolina coastlands, the eastern seaboard of the United States in Carolina. Since then, they've been found in various other places, even in South, on the South American continent as well, and going right back across to the uh, west, northwest in America. They're all, they're all um, oriented in an exact northwest direction. And a lot of people suggest that these would have been the bays created by the, uh, uh, some sort of an asteroid or a comet or whatever that was breaking up as it came into Earth's atmosphere and came over across the American continent from north west to south east. I would argue that almost certainly if something like that did happen, the, the, the object uh, impact, when it finally did impact, it impacted in the ocean, not on the Earth because the particular combination of circumstances that you need to start to bring you out of a, 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 a period of glaciation would be much more likely to occur because of a, a, a water impact or a, a, an ocean impact rather than a land impact. And there are deposits, for example, that have been analysed in those Carolina Bays which seem to suggest that you know, they, were, they were first uh, put down in something like 11,500 years ago. So there's a variety of different bits of evidence, there's ice core samples and all sorts of things that seem to be pointing to some big event of, uh, around about that time. Now, you know, all, all of the texts and traditions talk about this. But the bit that hasn't been picked up on properly before is people don't seem to have concentrated, in my view, enough on the fact that they all talk about it in a spiritual way. They all say the reason, I mean, okay, we can forget about it in the Bible, it says God was very angry and he sent the flood, because I don't think it quite happened like that. But they're all saying that the reason that there was this huge catastrophe and mankind was virtually wiped out was because uh, mankind had fallen from his spiritual path. And they're all quite clear about that. They all talk about how mankind had become debased, uh, and materialistic uh, and only cared about power and possessions and blah 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 now so my argument is that this was a, a, a karmic event if you put it into that much broader spiritual context now the only way I can support that view would be if for example these major catastrophes if this wasn't just one of a cycle that happened on a regular basis because if it's part of a cycle that happened on a regular basis there's nothing karmic in that at all because karma is all about choice and free will and all the rest of it certainly anybody I think most people who have this kind of spiritual worldview would accept that karma can operate on a more universal level and not it doesn't have to just operate on an individual level so there's no reason why mankind as a whole shouldn't have its own karma as a group and I've not seen anything that suggests, well, I've already said that I don't agree with the, like the Hindu idea, and, and Blavatsky and all the others who talk about root races and all these things, like, you know, these regular disruptions, and then they rebuilt again. You know, I haven't got time to go into it in a great deal of detail now, but I don't hold with that view of these regular disruptions of the human race and then rebuilding again. 
I also, I'm not aware, and any of you want to correct me, please go ahead, but I don't think anybody has yet. I'm not still aware of any scientific or known geological whatever mechanism that would allow for regular cyclical catastrophes that would have, specifically, that would have worldwide impact. I mean, we talk, a lot of people talk about sunspot theories um, and the, uh, their effect on the electromagnetic radiation of the planet and our, our polar axis and our, and our polar magnetic pole, poles shifting on Earth periodically. I'm happy with all of that. Um, yes, the Mayans may well have been aware of this and tried to represent it in their calendars and all the rest of it. But what we now still don't even know exactly how these things all relate to it, how sunspots affect our Earth's electromagnetic field. We sure as hell don't know what the... the, the so we're not fully aware of the, the, all the causal side of it, and we certainly don't know what the effects are, other than we do know that when they talk about a complete reversal of, of Earth's magnetic pole, we're not talking about the whole Earth physically till, you know, turning upside down. So I've, I've not yet seen anything that tells me that there are regular cyclical catastrophes that happen to the planet Earth. If that's the case, then my argument that, that this, the catastrophe of 11,500 years ago could well have been a karmic event as a result of mankind going down the wrong path, I think stands as a possibility. And bear in mind, as I say, that this is exactly what all of the different texts and traditions are saying. And no less a person than Plato, for example, now, you know, so in case you think that this is just, well, you know, you know th this is just simplistic people who, they, there was a huge natural catastrophe, and of course they were simplistic enough to think, well, the gods sent it on us because, you know, w we must have done something wrong. You know, I, they, I, I just keep emphasising, I don't think these people were that simplistic. And certainly if you get somebody like Plato talking like this, which people, you know, we know that everybody looks at Plato's work on Atlantis, right, where it was and what it looked like. What they never talk about is how he describes what the Atlantean people were like and what happened to the people and what they were like before and afterwards. And this is from Critias. He says, for many generations, so long, I mean, forget that he's using the word Atlantis. For many generations, so long as the divine element in their nature survived, they obeyed the laws and loved the divine to which they were akin. They retained a certain greatness of mind and treated the vagaries of fortune and one another with wisdom and forbearance, as they reckoned that qualities of character were far more important than their present prosperity. So they bore the burden of their wealth and possessions lightly, and they did not let their high standard of living intoxicate them or make them lose their self-control. So long as these principles and their divine nature remained unimpaired, the prosperity which we have described continued to grow. But when the divine element in them became weakened by frequent admixture with mortal stock, and their human traits became predominant, they ceased to be able to carry their prosperity with moderation. To the perceptive eye, the depth of their degeneration was clear enough. But to those whose judgment of true happiness is defective, they seemed, in their pursuit of unbridled ambition and power, to be at the height of their fame and fortune. And the God of gods, Zeus, who reigns by law, and whose eye can see such things, when he perceived the wretched state of this admirable stock, decided to punish them and reduce them to order by discipline. Now that's Plato talking. And I don't think, Plato, you know, whatever else Plato was doing, and even if he was in 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 indulging in a bit of well, he was definitely indulging in politics when he talked about the uh, divine nature of the Athenians, for example, in the same work, in Timaeus and Critias. 
he may have been indulging in a, a bit of uh, uh, deliberate, being deliberately misleading when he described the, na the physical nature of Atlantis and all of its temples with their metal and gold and jewels and all the rest of it. But I don't think he was probably being misleading when he said this. I mean, this isn't a joke. He's saying it with some degree of feeling. Um, so, now, you know, he's not the only one. They all talk in the same sort of way. I mean, again, here's a, 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 a Taoist text, uh, again, talking about what happened to the golden race. It's from the essays from Hoi Nansu. They say, when we arrive at the decadent age, we find that men dug into the mountains for precious stones. They wrought metal and jade into cunning vessels and broke open oysters in search of pearls. They melted brass and iron. The whole of nature withered under the exploitation. They ripped open the pregnant and slew the young untimely in order to get skins and furs. They broke down nests and despoiled birds that had not lain so that the phoenix no longer hovered around. They drilled wood for fire. They piled up timber to make verandas and balustrades. They burnt forests to drive out game and drained the waters for fish. In spite of this, the furniture at the service of the people was not enough for their use, whilst the luxuries of the rulers were abundant. Thus, the world of life partially failed and things miscarried so that the larger half of creation failed of fruition. There was grievous rupture of the yin and yang and the succession of the four seasons failed. Thunderbolts wrought havoc and hailstones fell with violence. Now, a lot of that description, you know, you, would, you could quite happily carry into the modern world. Just one more example from the book of the Hopi. Just give us a different continent again. Talking about the first people, which was their equivalent of the golden age. The first people knew no sickness. Not until evil entered the world did persons get sick in the body or head. They understood themselves. They were pure and happy. They felt as one and understood one another without talking. I mean, that's a very specific reference to potentially to telepathy. Gradually, there were those who forgot the commands of Sotoknang and the Spider-Woman to respect their creator. More and more, they used the vibratory centers of their bodies solely for earthly purposes, forgetting that their primary purpose was to carry out the plan of creation. It was then animals drew away from people. In the same way, people began to divide and draw away from one another, those of different races and languages, then those who remembered the plan of creation and those that did not. I have to accept that some of these things are being put in slightly different contexts. In the Book of the Hopi, for example, they talk about a first people, a second people, a third people. They do talk about multiple worlds that got destroyed. I happen to think that that bit is a, is a late add-on that I think is a, you know, I think from the context is a distortion. But that doesn't escape from the fact that all around the world we have got people talking about an originally golden race and then people who became debased, materialistic, very uh, hungry for power and possessions, etc., and forgot the spiritual path which was their natural birthright and paid a price because of it. And I would argue it was a karmic price and it came with the catastrophe of eleven and a half thousand years ago. Now, if I'm right, we've then got to ask ourselves what happened afterwards. How, I mean, of, of course, the biggest thing of the lot, and it doesn't take a genius to work this one out, is if I'm right, the whole thing is happening again. Now, for what it's worth, I think that after the catastrophe eleven and a half thousand years ago, oh, sorry, now I've just let me just come back to an archaeological point, which is massively important. 
in these the truth we, uh, when you've got people like Graham Hancock and others suggesting that um, the pyramids came out of nowhere um, there was no precedent for them you can't have these things developing overnight they must have come from Atlantean knowledge blah 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 frankly I think that's nonsense we've got a very clear development record uh, in the archaeology in Egypt of at least five or six hundred years of, of increasingly sophisticated structures before the, the Great Pyramid was built at Giza and if you look, just to compare it with what has happened in the last 500 years in our Western world and how much progress we've been able to make in that time. Okay, so I don't buy that one about no overnight development. But I do buy it in the context of the fact that we've increasingly been finding uh, settlements of some degree of sophistication, especially in Anatolia and Syria. For decades now, we've been, the, the earliest dates for these, like, these settlements have been being pushed further and further back. And, and Orthodox archaeologists, have to, you know, they're doing the investigations and having to accept these things. Although you don't still see anywhere near as much about it as I think you should do. Uh, then they found other sites, such as, and I don't know if my pronunciation may not be right, but places at Cattle Hoyuk, uh, Nivali Kori, various other places over there, uh, Gebekli uh, Teep, I think is another one. My friend Andrew Collins is a much more of an expert on these, and has in fact just recently been over there to see one of the new ones again. I might say new, it's only coming to light. The place that I um, discovered, or I didn't go there, but the place that I discovered the work that had been done on, which none of us had heard of before, in our group anyway, was a place called Jerf El Amar which is in Syria um, and there's pictures of it in the book so any of you want to come and have a quick flick you're more than welcome to there's some very good pictures here which um, it was a Franco-Canadian team that um, uh, did the investigations on it um, and the lady who ran the, the French side of the team very kindly let me reproduce a number of her pictures which hadn't really been seen on a widespread basis before but they're here in the book um, this was a big stone settlement it's got communal buildings uh, it's got individual dwellings um, uh, various different periods of occupation I mean I can't be absolutely sure what the different buildings were for but I mean it's quite clearly a sophisticated settlement in stone they've found evidence of settled agriculture um, and they've even found uh, suggestions of at least an early mnemonic form of writing possibly this is all orthodox people this is orthodox uh, archaeologists doing this not, this is no von Däniken stuff now the date of the earliest period of the occupation Eleven and a half thousand years ago, exactly the same sort of time that most of the dates are pointing through for this great catastrophe. And my suggestion is there really is no precedent for that. We haven't got anything like a precedent for that degree of sophistication from anywhere else around the world. And yet these sites are cropping up again and again in Anatolia and Turkey and, uh, and, uh, and Syria. And incidentally, Jerf and Amar is now under 15 metres of water because of the new dam building. So they got all these pictures, you know, and, and did what work they could before the dam came in. You know, well, you know, I mean, OK, there's people over there who've got to live and need a water supply, whatever, so I'm not going to be too harsh about it. But I think it's a very strong contention that these are the people from before the catastrophe rebuilding after the catastrophe. These are the survivors. And if they had that degree of sophistication when they're rebuilding, what sophistication did they have before? Now, I actually don't think they were necessarily building in stone because we've never found anything. But what I do think is that they were sophisticated enough that they developed a huge trading network over significant parts of the globe. You bear in mind that even though this was during, you know, we're going through periods of, should we say for the sake of argument, maybe from 50,000 years ago to 11,500 years ago, 
Yeah, there were plenty of parts of the world that were in a very temperate and uh, climate. You know, they didn't have to be all huddled in northern Europe in in caves. Crichton Miller, who's going to be talking to you next time. Um, I've done a fair bit of work with Crichton. He's written a book called the um, I can't remember the Golden Thread of Time, um, but it's about the, the Celtic Cross and his interpretation of the shape of the Celtic Cross being a navigational instrument. It's a very simple instrument. I think that they could well have been using that. Uh, back before uh, in antediluvian times I think they were building vessels they were capable of, of navigating the oceans I think they were trading extensively I think they were building large permanent settlements with settled agriculture um, they may have only been building in wood or mud brick I don't, you see for example warfare may not have been a significant feature of their way of life just because it has been for us ever since, it doesn't necessarily follow that that was part of their way of life then. For example, there may not have been a massive you know, population problem, so they may not have been competing for resources and, and space particularly much. If you didn't have warfare, there's no, not necessarily a massive reason, and, and you're in a fairly temperate climate, you don't need to be building in stone. One of the major reasons they might have started building in stone, I mean, again, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm theorising here, but I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. One of the reasons why they may well have started a building stone after the catastrophe is, of course, if you've had this major thing and you've got a few survivors who are fairly advanced and they can start rebuilding some settlements, they're going to need to protect themselves from all the poor buggers who are out there who might want to try and get in and steal their crops and their livestock or whatever. I think there is some archaeological evidence that hasn't been properly explained about how you've got these stone settlements, sophisticated, cropping up out of nowhere 11,500 years ago, and it hasn't been properly answered yet. And of course there are some tantalising, what they call out-of-place artefacts, that lots of different alternative writers have talked about. I've devoted excuse me, a chapter to that in here. I think a lot of it is fanciful, you know, the provenance of many of these things. A lot of them come from the 19th century. You know, it's very difficult to turn around and say that they are. There's certainly, there's no definitive evidence there of some level of technology or whatever from, you know, before 11,500 years ago. But there just may be some things in there that are interesting. If it is happening all over again, if, we, if the, if the, if the uh, catastrophe was a, was a karmic event because mankind had gone down the wrong path, what happened after that? Well, we obviously had people rebuilding. Um, I would argue that almost certainly the idea of the bringers, the, the, the theme and the, all the texts about the bringers of civilization comes back into play again. I think you would have had what I would call angelic souls, whatever you want to call them, incarnating again, a few of them at least, to try and help the rebuilding process and to make sure that the spiritual worldview got brought back into play properly again and brought into its proper perspective for, for mankind as a whole as part of the rebuilding process. I think as a result of that, that's why you still find that in many places in the Neolithic burial grounds and, all that, and, and their temples and all the rest of it, they show a great deal of simplicity, but also esoteric wisdom, arguably. And I, and I would also argue that by the time you've got the Mesopotamians and the ancient Egyptians building huge temples and very sophisticated buildings, I don't knock them for their sophistication, but I would still also argue that in fact already they had started to distort the proper spiritual understanding. I mean, people don't like me talking about this about the ancient Egyptians because for some reason they're supposed to be held to be so sacred. But I've not read anywhere yet that suggests to me that they, that they believed in the, the doctrine of reincarnation. They had this idea that your soul was weighed in the balance by uh, when you went in front of Osiris, and that if it didn't pass the test, it was at least, you know, they did you the benefit of throwing you into the, the fire straight away and you were destroyed. You didn't have to be in it forever, which is kind of nicer than what the Christians do. But 
they, you know, they believe in mummification. You know, to me, where's the, where's the philosophy in thinking that the physical body has got any use whatsoever after it's dead? I don't. Th- I, you know, I'm being deliberately annoying, right? In case any of you want me to, be, we can talk about it afterwards. But, you know, where's the philosophy in suggesting that only the wealthy people who can afford to have later on the pyramid text written uh, inscribed in, on the papyrus, you know? If you've got that in your tomb, you'll be okay. You know, you'll know how to navigate the underworld, the afterlife, and, and you'll pass the judgment with Osiris because you'll know all the proper phrases. Well, it's not very, you know, it's, it's horribly elitist. So I'm not overly impressed by their view. So I think it has started to go wrong already, and I've already said that. Although I think the Vedas, for example, the, the Indian Vedas, I think they probably do go back a good thousand years or so before um, most Orthodox people say. There is some fantastic esoteric insight in the Vedas. I think that's probably still one of the least polluted sources of any written wisdom that we have on the planet left. But certainly by the time you get to some of the Hindu stuff later on, which is when the idea of the world cycles comes in, you've got the universal cycles idea, which I think is superb and agree with, but you've got them applying it to the human race on planet Earth and these regular structures, which I don't agree with, so I think they're distortions where they've obviously, they've already started to lose the picture again. And of course we come to where we are now. Now I have no, I do not think that technological progress per se is bad. In fact I would almost definitely suggest that it's something we have to go through as, as the human race. But of course what I am saying is that what we clearly have been risking doing for a long time now is just endless technological progress completely at the expense of our spiritual awareness. And who knows what that means for us in terms of whether we're going to have to go down the same path as before and suffer a major knockout blow so that we've got to rebuild again because we've just gone too far down the wrong path. For what it's worth, my own view is that I think whatever we do, I think planet Earth will survive. And in actual fact, I also think, and this is purely an intuition thing, I also think the human race will survive. But we might well need to have another massive decimation and go through some pretty hard times in order to come out the other side and have another go, I think. I mean, don't get, I'm, not, I'm, not a, I'm not a pessimist. Um, and and I'm, indeed I'm not actually a catastrophist per se because the whole point about karma is choice and mankind has a choice not to keep going down this path isn't that the whole basis of evolution? to make mistakes mm-hmm. destruction well yes it does but I think we're go- I, I accept that but then how many times do you want to make the mistakes and what damage are you doing in the meantime Sorry? We're making new mistakes. I'm not sure we are. I'm not convinced we are. I mean, t- if, if, if mankind hasn't really been down this route of ungodliness and looking exactly. I think I think that's exactly technology and the, the technology. The technology is new. The technology is new. But I think in terms of in terms of losing our spiritual worldview, which I would argue is our birthright and our natural state, that's exactly what I think we're doing again. Oh yeah. But, well, again. Again, because I think that's exactly what happened before. I think that's exactly what happened to the golden race. That's what I've been trying to say. The golden race became debased in exactly the same way we're doing it now. That's what the text suggests. You know, it may be wrong. That's quite a different way, but yeah. Mm. But we all make mistakes. Yeah, I'm not suggesting for a moment anybody should be perfect, but like what I am definitely suggesting is that I do think this spiritual worldview is our birthright and our natural condition. And if we move away from it too much, we're definitely going down what I, I would even use the word wrong, a wrong path. Mm. Yeah, and I don't normally like to use the words right and wrong in a karmic context. 
Yeah, but we we have chosen it already. The question now is, do we want to? No, but do we want to carry on choosing it? That's the only reason I'm talking in the way I am. Sometimes we can learn by others' mistakes. Yes, of course. Look back in history and say, no, we've been there before. And that some some people say the conscience works like yeah. that. Yeah. When you suddenly have a conscience about something, it's a previous life. Uh-uh, been down there, got the T-shirt, yeah. no one. Well, that can happen, of course. Yeah, yeah. So we hope that's gonna. People are talking about that now. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly what we're not doing. So we're not going to do the mass human race has not got to a stage where it can choose yet. Has it? Well, why do you say that? Are we up? Well, I would argue that, yes. This is the way I thought for a long time. What you're saying, I'm finding, is what I've been thinking. Oh, that's good. I've got somebody on my side, then. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, no, I don't think so, no. But, I mean, that's where we really are going into new things. We definitely are playing golf now in a way we've never done before. But what souls come into those toned bodies? That would be very Well, that's, again, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's a very good question. It's a very good question. Well, they would have to make that decision, yeah, they would. But whether that would be seen as a, as a, as a nice thing to, a nice assignment or not, I'm not sure. <laughs> so when would you see the soul or the spirit going into a baby? Um, when it's first um, conceived, when uh, it's born? All of these people under regression suggest that it occurs at some point between conception and birth. Um, it has to happen pretty much before birth. But they also very interestingly say, and it makes a lot of sense, that it takes a fair bit of time to meld the, the soul essence with them. I mean, because each physical form of the baby has a, a, a distinctive mind and a, a brain pattern, and they have to meld their energy patterns of their soul with the brain, the, the physical brain pattern of the, of the, of the fetus. Um, and they especially say that, you know, if you're for less advanced, less advanced, karmically less advanced souls, that's not an easy process, it takes time. And of course one of the things that comes out as a result of all that is when the soul has a very difficult time adapting to its host body, that's when you can get all sorts of psychoses and various other things in later life. But it's, we, we can pick up on this again afterwards. Well, yeah, we are moving into the second yeah. phase, really, aren't we? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so we just have our for now, and then we've got plenty of time um, for questions and discussion. It's been very, very stimulating indeed. Good. It's got an immensely wide field, and many, many thanks for that. Thank so we'll, we'll have a look.